This is the second message in our four-part series on lessons in loving. And in this message, we're going to focus on relating with self. What are the skills that we need to learn to grow in what Gardner and others have called intrapersonal intelligence, or self-understanding, self-knowledge, self-worth? Let us begin with the definition of intrapersonal intelligence as provided by Howard Gardner in his book, Frames of Mind. Gardner defines intrapersonal intelligence as one's capacity to discriminate among one's feelings and eventually to label them and understand their relation to other psychic processes. That's quite a mouthful for sure. So let's go over the different parts of that. First, capacity to discriminate among one's feelings. What am I feeling at any given moment? Not as easy a question to reply to as you might think. To label the feelings. How would I describe this feeling state now? And finally, to understand the relationship between this feeling and other psychic processes. Why do I feel the way I feel right now? The end product of growth in this intrapersonal intelligence and these clusters of skills that I've just described would be number one, a sense of identity consistent in a variety of situations. In other words, integrity. Integrity as consistency of identity that I'm not one kind of person with one group and another kind of person with another group, that I am who I am in all situations, although of course I'm reacting and relating a little differently. Another outcome of growth in intrapersonal intelligence would be self-knowledge, that I know myself, not completely, of course, because there's always a depth, an area of mystery that I can't fully wrap my mind around. Growth in self-acceptance, that because I know what's going on, I can accept those things that are happening within me. And finally, number four, I can even love myself. I can even extend or grant toward myself unconditional benevolence, unconditional care. I can treat myself in a respectful manner and do what is necessary to meet my needs. Now, growth in this area, in intrapersonal intelligence, has always been in the church considered a high priority. St. Teresa of Avila, for example, the great Spanish mystic, considered self-knowledge a prerequisite for growth in the spiritual life. That without self-knowledge, there is the immense possibility of self-deception, naivete, and dishonesty we hear Shakespeare's character saying, know thyself, and to thy own self be true. So self-knowledge is a very important value and a very important outcome of intrapersonal intelligence. And without this kind of self-knowledge, there is really no possibility for growth and intimacy in relationships because you don't know who it is that you have to offer to another. So let us begin with the discussion of the relationship skills that we need to learn. If we wanted a person 
to grow in intrapersonal intelligence, what would we try to teach this person? What would we want to see them learn? Well, let's get back to that definition by Gardner. Only this time, we'll reflect on it a little more deeply. First, our capacity to discriminate among our feelings and to understand their relationship to other psychic processes. First part, capacity to discriminate among feelings. Okay? What we mean there is that it's important to know what you feel when you feel it. There's a big difference between feeling something and knowing that you feel it. In the one case, the feeling has me. In the second case, there is a part of my consciousness that has split off from the feeling itself and which is capable of regarding the feeling with a kind of objectivity. So that it's different, for example, to say, I am angry than just simply being angry. If I can say, I am angry, then I have split myself off from my anger, and I'm capable then of making a decision about what I do with my anger. This holds true with other feelings too. If I can say, I am sad, I am lonely, I am disappointed, it makes a big difference. Simply to be able to say that, to be aware of my feelings in a now moment, is a very great skill. And without this simple awareness of feelings, it's, it's impossible to get into some of the deeper aspects of intrapersonal intelligence. Okay, so that's our starting point, and it's a point that we need to work again and again, and I, I suppose there are many strategies that can be employed, the simplest being to stop and ask oneself through the day, what am I feeling right now? And there are several general categories of feelings which you might want to consider in responding to that. The general categories of feelings would be mad or angry kinds of feelings, sad, glad, scared, and then there's the guilt and shame kinds of feelings, lonely feelings, and so forth. Can you put a label on what you're feeling throughout the day? And granted, there are times during the day when it doesn't seem as though we're feeling very much at all. Even during those times, however, it's, it's a good thing to be able to say to oneself, I'm kind of numbed out right now, or I'm not feeling anything in particular. It's especially important to be able to put a label on our feelings when we begin to feel disappointed and hurt and angry because those are the kinds of feelings which, if expressed inappropriately, can cause rifts in our relationships, can drive us farther apart. One strategy for growing in emotional awareness is to simply ask ourselves then, through the day, what am I feeling right now? And then to try to simply put a label on it. In doing this, we might pay attention to what's happening in our bodies, for our bodies very often give us feedback about our feelings. If I'm kicking my leg a lot, for example, or pulling on my beard or my hair, if I'm fidgeting around in my seat, if I've got my fists closed tightly, if I'm biting down hard with my jaws, uh, 
all of these are signals about the kinds of feelings that I'm having. And my body is a, is a very good source of feedback in my emotional states. Another strategy for a growing and simple emotional awareness would be to begin keeping a feeling journal. And this might be something as simple as taking a sheet of paper and drawing a line down the middle. And at the end of the day, simply writing in the left-hand side of the paper what happened during the day. And to write that, of course, not in second by second or minute by minute, but in big chunks of time throughout the day. What happened? And in the right-hand side, what are some feelings that I was having while that was going on? And then just simply to write out the feeling words. This is the kind of practice that we need to do if we're going to grow in emotional awareness. And that's, that is work, a lot of work. Uh, one of the things I've noticed through the years is that there are many speakers who claim that you can grow in relationships and grow in emotional awareness without doing a lot of work. They give rah-rah speeches and get you fired up and leave you with the sense that uh, you're doing okay in your relationships because you're feeling really good. But the kind of growth that I'm talking about here is much deeper and much harder to bring about, but it's much longer lasting and more satisfying and will require work like keeping a feelings journal and simple emotional awareness through the day. Now this may not come too hard for some people. Some people, remember again, have a lot of potential in the area of intrapersonal intelligence and so they don't have a great deal of difficulty in getting in touch with their feelings. Also we know from personality studies that some people are more feeling types than others. Some people are more in touch with thinking than feeling. Some people are more introverted than others. Then to complicate matters even more, people who have been hurt a great deal in their relationships have probably developed defenses which keep them from feeling their feelings. And so let's say you get a person who's more of a thinker, who's been hurt in relationships, and who's somewhat of an introvert. It would be very difficult for such a person to say in any given moment what they're feeling. And I know what that's like because I am one such person myself, somewhat of an introvert, person who has had times in his life when I've been hurt in relationships, person who's learned very early in life to repress feelings. And so it took me a great deal of work to get in touch with my feelings. But if I could do it, coming out of that kind of background, and if other people can do it, and I've seen some people with some, some very strong defenses learn to identify their feelings, then I'm convinced that others can do it as well. Only it will take some work, it will take some practice. Okay? So that's the first kind of skill we need to develop. Uh, there are other ways of growing in intrapersonal intelligence. There are other starting points, rather. But this is, I believe, the most important one of all. Identifying the feeling and putting a label on it. Now, the second skill that I think we need to learn is what are we going to do with that feeling once we feel it? A feeling is energy. It's a kind of psychic energy. And as such, it has to be expressed. It will be expressed. And I like to think that there are four 
avenues or routes for expressing our feelings. The first one doesn't sound like a mode of expression, but actually it is, and that would be stuffing it or repressing it. This would be taking a feeling or uh, not allowing ourselves to experience a feeling by shoving it down out of consciousness. Let's say, for example, that I'm feeling angry toward my spouse. Well, if I stuff my feelings, then I don't even allow myself to experience my anger. I just shove the feelings on down. I build a kind of wall between my, my ego consciousness and my feeling so that I'm not even aware of it. Only we know that the feeling doesn't go away. Simply to not be aware of it doesn't mean that it's gone away. What it's done is it's gone down into the unconscious, where it continues to build up in strength as I continue to repress. Doing this is sort of like building a dam in front of a river. And if you build a dam in front of a river, the water backs up. And if the water backs up enough, it goes over the dam or the dam bursts, which is the second way that we express feelings. We would call it acting out. Is simply doing what the feeling makes you feel like doing. So that if I'm angry at my spouse, I yell and I scream and I shout and maybe I throw things and stomp around and if it really gets out of hand, maybe I even hit. Now that gets the feeling out of my system but it, it also does some damage in a relationship. Nevertheless, it may be appropriate at times to act out some feelings, just as it may also be appropriate at times to repress feelings. Surely, I'm not saying here that we should go around blabbing about our feelings every time we have a feeling. I think it's certainly appropriate to repress mild annoyances and to deal with them later, perhaps by talking it out with someone writing about it in a journal, praying about it, or whatnot. And I also think it's appropriate at times to act out feelings, to cry when one is very sad, to laugh when one is very happy, even to let one move with one's anger, as we see Christ in the temple overturning the tables, acting out of righteous indignation to further the cause of justice. So it's not the mode of expression, it's how appropriate the mode of expression is in that moment. A third route, however, which is, is seldom appropriate, is the you message. And the you message means that I blame another person for the way that I feel. I make you responsible for my feelings by blaming, judging, criticizing, or whatnot. And we do this in many subtle kinds of ways. We, we very seldom, of course, say, uh, you're responsible for the way I feel. It's, it, it comes out in the way that we talk about our feelings. We talk about our feelings, and let's say again, angry, that I'm angry toward my spouse because she came in late from uh, a meeting of some kind, and I was expecting her to come in earlier uh, because we had some things to talk over and so forth. What I would do in the you messages, I would make her responsible for the fact that I'm angry, and I'd blame her for my anger, and I might then use words such as, she always comes home late, she never considers me and my needs, uh, I get into judging her, I'm talking about everything but my feelings, I'm focusing on her, and even I'm trying to hurt her, 
if it really gets out of hand. The you message is, is uh, even inappropriate when we're expressing positive feelings. Certainly and obviously inappropriate in expressing anger and others, but even positive feelings that I, I can't blame others or make others responsible for the way I feel. You take even a, a, a simple and seemingly innocent statement that many parents give out all the time to their kids. You're going to make mommy angry. If you keep this up, mommy's going to get angry. Um, which, for a child, must be an overwhelming kind of message at times to think that their behavior, uh, that they are responsible for their parents' emotional well-being. And, and of course, they are not entirely. Uh, they certainly influence our feelings, and I'm, I'm not denying that aspect either. We do affect one another's feelings. However, I am responsible for my feelings, and your behavior affects my feelings, but I have to own my own part in that process. And so uh, that, that leads to the fourth mode of expressing feelings, which is the assertive method or the I message. In the assertive message or the I message approach, what we attempt to do is to make a distinction between how we feel and the circumstances which exist in connection with our feelings. There would be two or three parts to the I message, and you can put them in whatever order you're most comfortable with. Uh, let's consider again the wife coming home uh, later than I'd expected her. I may, might say something like, well, I've, I felt worried because you were running late, and I was afraid something had happened to you. Well, what I'm doing there is telling her, number one, how I feel. And when we say how we feel, we use feeling words. Mad, sad, glad, scared, in this case, worried. We tell her the connection between our feelings and her behavior. I felt worried because you came home late. Okay, that's a specific kind of circumstance, coming home late. We're not judging her character. We're not blaming her. We're not criticizing or putting her down. We're just saying, you said you would be home at 9.30 and at 10.15. Uh, I was really starting to get worried because you hadn't called and so forth. And a third part would be consequences to me. The consequence to me was I started to become fearful that you'd been in an accident or that something bad had happened. Now, when we use an I message in communicating our feelings, we are, are being very honest about just what exactly is happening. This is not a gimmicky or technique -y kind of a thing. It's a simple fact that things happen to us and we have feelings about what happens to us. And you don't get much simpler than that. And that's really all we're trying to do in the I message is saying these things happen. And when we say what those things are, we speak in specific behavioral terms. These things happen and these are my feelings about them. When we communicate in that way, we cannot disagree. My wife, my wife cannot disagree with me if I say, uh, I was worried because you came home late. Uh, it would be inappropriate for her to say, well, you shouldn't be worried or don't be worried or something like that. It's a simple fact that I am worried and I'm not accusing her of anything. I'm just saying, I felt this way because you behaved in this way. So that's our second learner outcome. The first being 
what what do we feel the second being what are we going to do with our feelings and I think you can see that with that second part there are many implications in our relationships for how we express feelings if I feel some anger toward someone and I repress it then chances are our relationship is going to drift apart and these repressed feelings might also cause me to have ulcers high blood pressure and so forth there are consequences in the way we express feelings if I act out my feelings it will bring consequences in my relationship if I use the you message approach which is probably the most common approach that we see in on television and the soap operas in uh, most marriages and parents and children the you message approach is the one that that seems to be uh, most common in our culture well if we use that approach then we end up feeling responsible for other people's feelings and that's just simply not appropriate at all and then the fourth approach the I message there is a possibility for intimacy in the I message and we'll go more into that in our third message where we talk about uh, what happens when people share feelings and how we listen and how we validate the feelings of another uh, the only point we're trying to make in this message here is that we are responsible for the way we express our feelings but we cannot even make a decision about that unless number one we're aware of what we feel when we feel it then and only then can we say to ourselves well what am I going to do in this situation with this feeling what is the most loving way to express this feeling to repress it to act it out to do what makes me feel like doing or to do an I message of some kind and let the person know in a respectful and assertive manner how their behavior is affecting me and hopefully to not do the you message which would be a fourth way okay so those are two learner objectives a third learner objective would be to begin to understand what feelings are teaching us about ourselves that yes uh, we, we you've heard many times perhaps that feelings are not bad or good they just are and that's true when a person tells us how they feel it's not appropriate to tell them you shouldn't feel that way or don't feel that feeling or it's bad to feel that feeling uh, there's there's nothing moral or immoral about having a particular feeling feelings just are morality enters in in the area of behavior and what we do with the feeling that's a moral decision morality also enters in into the cause of the feeling the kinds of beliefs and attitudes that gave rise to them so what we can learn to do in this third learner outcome we can learn what feelings are teaching us about ourselves and feelings are teaching us about the meaning of the events in our lives that's why they're so important and that's why it's important that we learn about them every time we have a feeling it's a, it's giving us some feedback about the state of our inner being some people have rightly I believe called feelings windows into the soul let's think about different feelings for a few moments and, and what they are telling us to give some general descriptions about the kind of feedback that we can get about our lives from just paying attention to our feelings 
And let's start with the one we've been speaking the most about because there are many implications here in our relationship, and that's the feeling of anger. Whenever we experience anger, and, and all of its varieties is indignation, rage, aggravation, um, irateness, and so forth, what, what these feelings are telling us is that we've been hurt or disappointed. Anger usually happens when our expectations are not being met. And when our expectations are not being met, we feel hurt or disappointed. And so angry, anger is actually a very superficial feeling. Anger is uh, a natural response to try to fend off something that is hurting us or disappointing us so that it won't keep hurting us and disappointing us. It's an attempt to push it away. If we can look beneath the anger and, and see what it is that's hurting us or disappointing us, then maybe we can change our anger. Do you believe that you can reach a point in your life where you don't get angry very often at all? Well, I believe you can because I made some great progress in my own life. I used to have a lot of expectations about myself, expectations about others, expectations about how the world should be run. And like Archie Bunker, I spent a lot of time getting mad when things didn't go my way. Well, if anger is the result of expectations not being met, then I can learn a lot about my expectations by paying attention to my anger. I can even identify unrealistic expectations that I might have of myself, and I can change them. And toward the end of this message, I'm going to share with you a process for changing your inner attitudes. So anyway, that's the first lesson we can learn, is that anger tells us what our expectations are, and then we can decide by paying attention to our anger if our expectations are reasonable or unreasonable. Guilt tells us that our behavior is in conflict with our values, and that's a very good thing to pay attention to. We always feel guilt when behavior goes against values. By paying attention to guilt, we can decide then what should be done. Should we change our behavior or should we change our values? And more likely than not, it will be quite a bit easier to change behavior. I should also mention at this point that there is a great difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is a feeling that my behavior is out of line, and it leaves me with the conviction that I've done wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is guilt that's internalized against the self. And when I feel shame, I feel that I'm no good. And there's a great deal of difference between the, the statements, I've done wrong and I'm no good. It's a very good thing to be aware at times, I've done wrong, because we do wrong. We do behave in ways that go against our values. It's quite a different thing, however, to say to oneself about oneself, I'm no good. We don't want that. Shame is, there's no place for shame in the church. We shouldn't be shaming each other, and if we are, we should stop. We're shaming our spouses and children by labeling them, by saying things which hurt them, by, which put them down in certain ways, uh, that needs to stop. Feelings of peace, of joy, of happiness come to us when our expectations are being met, when our needs are being met, when our wants are being met. 
And so we can learn a lot about ourselves by paying attention even to our, our pleasant or positive feelings. And if we experience these kinds of feelings when our wants and needs are met, then there's a case for recognizing the value of simplicity. The more simple our wants, the more simple our needs, the more likely it is that we'll experience some kind of contentment. On the other hand, the more complicated our wants, the more extreme our expectations, then the less happiness and joy and peace we're going to experience. And even when we do, it will be quite tenuous because we'll, we'll be afraid that we'll lose whatever it is that's making us feel happy. Feelings of sadness come when we have lost an important person, place, or thing, or even part of ourselves. And the part of ourselves uh, is probably one that hasn't been discussed very much in the literature, but there's no question in my mind that we feel a certain amount of sadness and grief when our lives begin a new uh, kind of journey, when we move from one place to another, when we move from one job to another, when one period of our lives end and another begins, uh, that's a change for us, and there's a certain amount of sadness and grief connected with the loss of an old way of life. What sadness and grief can teach us is what people, places, and things have been important to us. But having acknowledged that, the only course of action left after identifying the cause of our grief or sadness is to is to let the grief cycle take its place, to let it work its way out. If you're sad and in grief, you have to go through the grief cycle, which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has described so well in her books and workshops and lectures. The movement from denial and anger and depression and bargaining to finally a state of acceptance. Fear is also a feeling that can teach us a lot. And I believe fear is probably a very deep feeling in most of us. The feeling of fear can also teach us a great deal about ourselves. We experience fear every time we perceive ourselves as having a problem which threatens the fulfillment of our wants and needs, but we have no solution to this problem. So fear is having a problem without a solution, and a problem concerning the fulfillment and gratification of our wants and needs. I believe fear is one of our most deeply rooted feelings. And we all have deep-rooted feelings of fear concerning death, relationships, rejection by others, and so forth. And so what do we do about fear? Well, we have to find a solution to these problems. And as we shall see in our, our fourth message, uh, perhaps some of those solutions can only be found through faith. What do we do, for example, about the fear of death? What do we do about the fear that life is meaningless, that life is an absurdity? Well, some of, some of these solutions can only be found through religious truth and our assent to faith propositions of different kinds. Okay, so where we are is the first the importance of awareness of feelings, secondly, how we express feelings, and thirdly, what feelings are teaching us about ourselves. Once we learn what feelings are teaching us about ourselves, then we can get at the root of our feelings, which is our beliefs. 
I have a little formula that I use to explain human behavior, or to at least help me understand a great deal about human behavior, and it goes like this. That behavior equals perceptions plus beliefs plus feelings plus decisions. And I'm going to explain that by telling you a little story, a story which is recounted in the book Lessons in Loving and also in Father John Powell's book, The Christian Vision. As the story goes, there was a man who came home one night and he was slightly inebriated. He looked out onto his lawn and he saw a 30-foot snake. He became fearful, went into his utility room and got a hoe and chopped the snake into pieces. And the next morning, upon walking outside, he discovered to his horror that he had chopped his garden hose up into pieces. Okay, this little story is not a typical one. We don't do this very often, granted, but it illustrates many of the points that I wanted to make. The first one is that if in your mind you see something, if you think you see a snake, then everything else that follows is responding to snake. And our man in this story saw a snake, and so his beliefs, his feelings, and his decisions were all responding to his perception of snake. The second thing we notice is that the man felt afraid. Why did he feel afraid? Again, fear is the feeling that we have when, when we, we perceive a problem without a solution. The man felt threatened. And uh, in that situation, part of his problem was that he wasn't sure where the snake came from, where it would go, if it would still be there in the morning and it was a threat to him and perhaps his children. But that's not all we notice. That's not the only reason he was afraid, that he was threatened by the snake because he perceived that the snake would hurt him. Is that necessarily true? And it's at this point that we discover the critical role of beliefs. You see, if I had seen that snake, being an ex-biologist and somewhat of a naturalist, I wouldn't have been afraid because I know that, first of all, there are no poisonous green snakes in our country. Secondly, I, I rather like snakes, and I'm not afraid of them. So the importance of knowledge and values comes into play here. And what we learn is that our feelings are a consequence of our perceptions and our beliefs. As you perceive and as you believe, your feelings will track along those lines. If our man had a different body of knowledge about snakes, a different understanding of how threatening they were or not threatening, he would probably have had different feelings about the snake in his lawn or the garden hose as it may be. Next thing we notice is that our man decided to chop the snake up. He may not have experienced it as a decision, he just did it. But the plain fact is, is that what we do, we do because we have decided to do. We are responsible for our behavior, even though that behavior may not have been made out of a conscious, thought-out decision. There are two different kinds of decisions. One would be the conscious, thought-out kind, which reviews options, which establishes priorities, and on that basis decides the best course of action. The other kind would be the reactive, uh, feeling-driven kind 
of habitual conditioned decision that we see so much of in human behavior. So let's review that little formula again. Behavior equals perceptions plus beliefs plus feelings plus decisions. And growth in, in intrapersonal intelligence will require that we become familiar with all different aspects of that formula. Okay, our next point that we move on to is to look at what we do then to transform unhealthy beliefs and unhealthy decisions into healthy beliefs and healthy decisions. And it's at this point that I think we need to learn a practice which is essential for personal growth and for growth in intrapersonal intelligence. And that is the daily inventory. The daily inventory is one of our greatest allies for personal growth. What we do in the inventory is we take a few minutes at the end of the day, and I like to do it taking a walk. And we just simply look back on the events of the day. What happened? Remember that little journal exercise I suggested earlier. What happened? In the second part, how did we feel? The thirdly, what did we do with our feelings? And then we might also look back and learn from our feelings what they're teaching us about our belief system. How reasonable are those expectations which provoke this to anger? How reasonable are the expectations even which led to feelings of joy or pleasure? Uh, what are our values like? Values which led us to guilt. Uh, what are our fears based upon? And so forth. So we look back through our feelings to learn about our perceptions and our beliefs. In doing this, we affirm ourselves for the good decisions we have made. We repent and we ask forgiveness for the lousy decisions that we made. And we become more aware through this process, and that's, I guess, one reason why it's not too popular. We become aware of just how many times in the day we are not very responsible. But we can ask the Lord to forgive us and learn from the experience we had as well. Finally, we can re-image a situation and reprogram into our minds new ways of behaving. Suppose in that example I've given many times already that my wife comes home late and I become angry about it. And let's suppose that what I did with my anger in this case was I blasted her with a bunch of you messages. I told her she always this and she never that. I blamed her, I criticized her, I judged her, I uh, said things as though she didn't like me and that's why she was late and so forth. Well, in doing the inventory at the end of the day, I would look back on that, I would see that I got angry, I would see that I used the you message approach to expressing my feelings and I might then make the decision to uh, ask the Lord for forgiveness and make a resolution to apologize to my wife, both of which are essentials for dealing with the guilt I would feel. But I could also do something in addition to that. I might rehearse that same circumstance again in my mind. I might go back to the point where I was waiting for her and I was angry. I might see myself in imagination, waiting, anticipating, rehearsing all the ugly things I was going to say when she came in. And, I'd, and I might, in imagination, as I do my inventory, begin thinking of alternative ways to express that feeling. 
and you can even see yourself behaving in a new way. I could see myself telling myself in imagination as I waited for her, now I'm angry right now, and I'm even wanting to express the anger in a lot of you message things, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give her a straight eye message, I'm going to say I'm really worried, I got angry, you're running late, and I was expecting you earlier, and I can see and feel myself doing that in an imaginative rehearsal of that event. Now when we do that, what we're doing is we're programming into the mind an alternative way of behaving, so that the next time we're in a situation like that, we're not stuck with the old conditioned response. We have a new way to behave if we want to choose it. Again, practice, practice, practice. You might have to do this in your imagination many times. What I've just described is a process called positive imaging. And you may remember years ago that wonderful book by Norman Vincent Peale, which focused on the beliefs and attitudes, and it was called positive thinking. And uh, Peale recognized that uh, positive thoughts led to positive feelings and positive decisions and behaviors. Now he's also recognizing in some of his tapes and books and lectures the importance of positive imaging, that we can actually see ourselves doing something new. And that's a very, very important part of intrapersonal intelligence. If you can see yourself doing the responsible thing, the good thing, the loving thing, then it's only a matter of time before you do it. Now, this doesn't work with everything, of course. I've tried it with my golf swing, but th even there, there's no question that after watching good golfers play golf for a while, I go out and I hit a better swing. Just think of the phrase we use so often, I can't see myself doing that. Are we not saying in that phrase that we're constantly comparing ourselves to some inner picture we have of ourselves? And if that inner picture we have of ourselves doesn't know how to behave responsibly, then we're not going to behave that way either. So in positive imaging, we can recreate the image we have of ourselves, and we do it in grace and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the inventory is. To summarize, then, the skills that we need to learn to grow in intrapersonal intelligence are, number one, awareness of feelings. What are we feeling in this now moment? Number two, how we express our feelings, the four different ways. Number three, understanding what our feelings teach us about ourselves, what they're telling us about our own inner life. Number four, understanding the relationship between our beliefs and expectations and our feeling states. And number five, learning to program healthy beliefs and healthy behaviors into our mind through positive imaging and meditation. Okay, those are five important areas, and there, there are several more that we could go into, but if we could learn these five, we would make a great deal of progress in the realm of intrapersonal intelligence. We would know ourselves much better and we would also possess the tools that we need in order to transform the unhealthy uh, behaviors that we have now to transform those to positive behaviors. I think these skills can be taught, I think they can be learned, and I think if practiced they can make a big difference in everyone's lives. They've made a difference in mine and, and that's why I endorse them so enthusiastically. And I hope you give them a try and practice them yourself.